the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, that indeed is us. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. She is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and serves as the board chair for the National Council on Aging, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, and uh, stops chatter at a cocktail party whenever she says, I'm a gerontologist. That's right. You want to kill a good party, just talk (laughs) about aging. And they all walk away. And And yet, aging is the hot topic of of the day. Well, you know, it is. And at my um, last college reunion, as people were staring at me with blank eyes, (laughs) I said, you may not remember me and you may not know me now, but... About 10 years from now, you're all going to want to know me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and when everything that you have in your head. That's because right. Because you spent a lot of years working on a, a number of issues in aging, including this one, a, a recent survey on long-term care, uh, which is the baby boomers age into their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s becomes uh, such an issue for so many families. What is the state of long-term care? Well, this is, I saw this article that came out of the, um, it was a long-term care poll from NORC, which is out of the University of Chicago, um, and they do a variety of aging studies. But what was interesting is they're talking to baby boomers, 40 and over, and older adults about what they know about long-term care. So you and I know that what people don't know is that Medicare doesn't pay for long-term care. Right. And they think it does. And they think it does. That Medicare will pay for, you know, rehabilitative services in a skilled nursing facility after you leave the hospital for a period of days. But they're not going to pay for a mom who has Alzheimer's uh, to live in a nursing home or assisted living. So the choices are either public pay, which means you have to spend down to Medicaid, or private pay, which means you're going to spend down probably to Medicaid before it's all over. And spending down has become more and more difficult. Well, well, it is. Because you know, the rules have changed. And the states, you know, don't want to have to pay for the long-term care, but we don't. We really don't have anything. Um, and so this, this, um, this survey really asked, you know, sort of the state. And, and what we found out is that two-thirds of the country um, feel that we're not prepared for this rapid growth of the ba- of the aging population. So it's going to double by the year 2060. So between 2015 and 2060, um, double the number of older adults. And so if you think of everyone you know that has ever had Alzheimer's or cancer or arthritis or any disease that age is the most prevalent indicator that you're going to get it. Um, now, double all of that. Wow. Uh, you realize how much disability there is, which kind of leads to the second one, uh, is that most boomers heavily underestimate what kind of long-term care they might need in the future. And so they're not buying long-term care policies. They're not putting away money into savings for long-term care. And they're not having conversations about long-term care, you know, with their parents or their parents with them. We're all just like, I've heard that ostriches don't really stick their head in the sand. I've always wondered how they did that anyway since they don't have arms. But, um, <laughs> but apparently true. They're all sticking, we're all sticking our heads in the sand, which doesn't really happen. Uh, so, you know, it, it's kind of a problem because it's, it's denial, 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 you know, and it d- does not uh, go away <laughs> just because we're not paying any attention to it. But that's a common 
uh, defense mechanism on the part of a lot of folks. Why think about it? Because it's so depressing. Well, you know, the interesting thing is we we do th- we we still have this belief that we're going to live longer, which may be true, and in better health than our parents with more money. Okay, so we're starting to get the feeling that we may not have more money than our parents after the last few recessions. <laughs> um, and yeah, we may live longer, but the in better health, actually, baby boomers are not as in good of health as their parents overall. So we may live longer, but we're talking 20 years needing some sort of long-term care. And I should clarify, that means everything from somebody coming into your home, you know, home health person coming to help, you know, clean and maybe help dress and bathe you, maybe cook a meal, maybe Meals on Wheels, all the way up to skilled nursing. So all of that's part of long-term care. You know, it's 20 odd dollars an hour to have home health come into your home. And if you think, you know, if you can, they don't come usually for less than four hours. So if you want to spend $120, $150 a day for every day of your life, let's start ticking that off for a month, how much money that is. Mucho. It, it's mucho dinero. It's a lot of money <laughs> in all the languages. It's mixing Spanish and yeah, Italian. It's a I lot. like that. It's everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, so what the poll also shows is that the majority of Americans, that is Republicans and Democrats and independents, um, believe that there should be more paid family leave. There should be more policies that support family caregivers. Recently, there was, an, you know, the idea of um, paying for moms to be able to stay home longer has been floated with the Trump administration. But they're not talking about paying for, you know, time to take care of your parents. So more than three in four people favor tax breaks for family caregivers um, or to encourage savings for long-term care and purchasing long-term care insurance. So nobody's doing anything, but everybody's in favor of it. We'll talk more about this on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and we are so pleased to have you with us talking about uh, the state of long-term care in this country and what folks think about it. Uh, The challenge, of course, is while uh, the pressures on Medicaid continue to grow, the pressures in Washington to cut back on Medicaid continue to grow as well. Well, I think there's a a misconception that Medicaid is paying for people who don't want to work, that somehow Medicaid is tied to people who are living on the dole. It's ludicrous. Um, And they don't realize that most Medicaid recipients in most communities happen to be families who have a loved one in a nursing home or a person with a disability, um, so much so that they can't work. We're not talking about, you know, your next-door neighbor's son who's faking a back pain. I mean, these are people with significant disabilities or or older people who cannot live at home, who have to be supported 24 hours a day. And if that support disappears... What happens to them? Well, that's it. And so these these cuts that are being proposed right now are are terrifying for those of us who do work in the aging field. Because I can remember um, when I first started years and years ago, it was I think it was the last century. Yes, it was. Um, You know, we used to say, what are they going to do? Just take people out of the nursing home and put them out on the street? Well, I don't think they would then, but I do think they would now. I mean, you know, the the public hospitals and um, nonprofits who help people pay for long-term care and nonprofit uh, nursing homes, and there aren't any nonprofit assisted livings. It's all for-profit. So, you know, those organizations, that money is just, it's not there anywhere. The money is not in the system. There aren't policies that promote long-term care. There's no money set aside to help any you or your relatives live in a facility unless you spend down to abject poverty. Right. And get Medicaid. So, you know, so so I guess the bottom line on this is this is a poll, but what, you know, it would be helpful for you, whoever's listening in whatever state you live in, pay attention to what's going on with Medicaid because, you know, like it or not, they're talking about someone you know and they're probably talking about someone in your family no longer getting the help they need to stay in a nursing home. And an interesting sidebar to that, what is the number one cause of need for long-term care? Well, probably Alzheimer's disease. And that's another study. I don't know if you saw it, Ron, but there was a very alarming headline probably about three weeks ago, that talked about the increase of deaths, deaths from Alzheimer's disease. 
and they were trying to understand why. So um, the survey, there was a, they went and looked back 10 years between 19, um, I still so it's not quite 10 years, 1999 to 2014. No, my math is not good. Um, and looked at the increase. And there were significant increases in Alzheimer's death, along with the increase of absolute numbers of people that have Alzheimer's. So we know why the absolute numbers are going up, because there's, you know, boomers are getting older, and age is the leading risk indicator for Alzheimer's disease. Older but you get, the higher the risk. The higher the risk. So 20% of people aged over 60, age 65, and 40% over the age of 80 have Alzheimer's. It's the sixth leading cause of death and the only one that is not treatable, not preventable. There's nothing you can do for it because heart disease and lung disease and all of that, all the other causes have, there's something you can do, but you can't do anything for Alzheimer's. And, and what they found was very interesting. So deaths went up 54%. It's a huge number. 54% increase in deaths. Uh, between, you know, from the first of the study, it used to be 25 per 100,000. I'm sorry, it used to be 16 per 100,000, went up to 25 per 100,000. Um, but and the other thing is the shift people, more people are dying at home from Alzheimer's than in a nursing facility. We were just talking about long-term care right. and nursing facilities. So what do you think that means that people are dying at home from Alzheimer's? They're not getting the care they need. Well, the care, they, the care they're getting is from families. Right. And so, you know, people with Alzheimer's need 24-7 care. Mm -hmm. That's a huge burden. And so we have to ask the question, you know, it's great if people can stay at home, but it's a heavy, heavy toll. Anyone who's cared for somebody with Alzheimer's knows that. It'd be interesting to see an analysis of the caregiver deaths for those caring for someone with Alzheimer's at home. Well, yeah, there's, you know, in this particular study, and this was the CDC, they did not look at caregivers themselves, um, but they looked at, you know, who was the greatest risk. And, and some of this increase, honestly, may be because finally coroners and physicians are actually writing Alzheimer's on the death certificate as the, cause of, death, as the right. cause of death as opposed to a heart attack or a stroke or, you know, old age frailty. Um, but if you are non-Hispanic, if you are, excuse me, non-Hispanic black or Hispanic, then you are more likely to have Alzheimer's than Anglo populations. And it has to do with cardiovascular disease. Hmm. Um, the reason that whites have more deaths from Alzheimer's is because bl the black and Hispanic communities die of the cardiovascular disease before the Alzheimer's gets so bad, and the whites actually die of the Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. Um, I think we've underestimated Alzheimer's for a long time. But if you want to put something, a pin in, in something and say, this is the issue to watch. Um, it is Alzheimer's disease will change the face of this wow. country if we continue to have this kind of an increase in the number of people with Alzheimer's, the number of people dying from Alzheimer's, and the number of people at home and in nursing homes who need care. We're going to talk to Winnie Barnum Newman in just a couple of moments about uh, caregiving and caring for her husband. Died of cancer, not Alzheimer's, but it is an incredible love story of caregiving, and that's coming up next right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. Well, we are so pleased you are riding along with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we had promised, and now we will deliver what we promised. Winnie Barnum-Newman joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, 
woman who I have known for many years, well-known across this community, but many folks may not know the backstory of her service as a caregiver to her late husband, Buell T. Newman, service that stretched out to 51-plus years. It involved alcohol and alcoholism and depression and caregiving for a cancer patient and a whole lot more. And so, Winnie, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you and happy to get a chance to um, hopefully reach out and help some other people. Well, as the story began and as you talked to me about it the other night, uh, your husband was an alcoholic. For nine years of our marriage, yes. And really what he was doing was self-medicating? He was self-medicating because he didn't realize that he had depression. He had never, uh, this is interesting, I'll throw it in, he'd never had anything to drink until he went into the service during the Korean War. And when he did, I think he was in the Signal Corps, and when he did, he started drinking because they all drank. And he was in Germany. (laughs) He fell in love with beer. And um, when he, 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 really realized later in life that one of the reasons that he was a good candidate to drink was because there was alcoholism in his family, but also because it soothed him. And he had not named whatever was bothering him, but it obviously turned out to be depression. And it was clinical depression, which is much stronger and more difficult to deal with with, than with, say, the depression that I've I've had and experienced after his death. So that's that's caused by an obvious reason. We can all control that a little better, but that's why, he, yes, he was self-medicating. And at the time, uh, why let a guy drink alone? You began to drink heavily yourself? I did. I didn't drink as heavily as he did, and I suddenly decided I don't want to do this. We had two young daughters. And I said, I want to quit. We were living in San Miguel de Allende at the time, and uh, I did decide to quit, and then I started again. We came back to the States for a visit, and I actually went to see someone at the uh, National Council on Alcoholism about him. And the man said, well, I want you to try a test with him. See, Let's see if he's really an alcoholic. So I tried the test with him. If you'd like me to tell you what it is, it's very simple. Yeah, sure. It is a beer or whatever your drink of choice is each day for three days, and you cannot miss it. You have to have it. Now, the interesting thing is that if you're an alcoholic, you will actually try to miss it to prove that you're not an alcoholic. But he did it twice, and he failed both times. In other words, on the third day he could no longer hold off. It's, it's very interesting. It really worked. Now, how about in your case? You, you were drinking, but not an alcoholic? I was not an alcoholic. I could easily quit. I grew up uh, in the old European way where you... I, we weren't allowed as children, but as I got older, you might have a small glass of wine or a taste of wine with dinner and that sort of thing. So uh, alcohol wasn't... It wasn't an issue with me, and when I decided to quit, I could. Well, what, whether that was psychologically or whatever, I I could. Well, so, I, so the the willpower I know is is a part of that. You know what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic. But what was your husband like when he was drinking? Um, still himself, he would lose his temper, not with me but with other people. He he was very protective of me, and he didn't want anybody, uh, you know, flirting with me or what have you. And um, we were extremely close. We I, I've been writing a book. We had an incredible love story, absolutely adored each other, and uh, it, it's, it's worth telling, so I decided I would write a book about it as well as be able to help people with the caregiver issues because I saw so much take place in the hospital. But uh, we were very close, very, very close, and uh, I would not have been drinking as much except that he wanted me with him all the time. <laughs> so, well, and, and that so, may, I think that makes sense yeah. that, you know, what you observed in the military with his buddies, I don't think it's unusual for people who haven't 
you know, had any alcohol consumption to get into the military. A friend of mine was a complete vegetarian his entire life, and he came back from the military a meat eater, and his wife called him Eggs Benedict Arnold because he came back <laughs> eating meat. You know, that's so your habits funny. do, you know, your habits do, do yeah. change. <laughs> well, that's true. Buell also began to smoke. They all smoked. I always said if somebody was shooting at me, I would probably do all kinds of bad well, things just to, to, to he, not be shot. Think no, yeah. people were shooting at me. But he didn't have to go into battle. He was in the Signal Corps and the intelligence units. So they they wanted, which I have an issue with a lot of it. I mean, I'm glad that he was safe. I didn't know him at the time. That was way before I met him. But um, he was older than I am. But it, he was. Um, he didn't have to go into battle, and and that's uh, that's another whole subject. <laughs> well, talk they, to us a bit about his depression and mm-hmm. uh, whether he was drinking or not. Uh, the depression was certainly there, underlying that behavior. It was. And what it were was, you the seeing? Depression was the battle with us. the The alcohol was. I just wanted him to quit drinking, and at one point in our in our marriage, I would say to him. Uh, if you don't quit drinking, I'm going to leave you. Well, that was a threat, and that's not the way you handle people. So eventually, I sincerely felt, uh, and it was part of it was because we had become part of a belief, and I didn't want I didn't want any of that life anymore. I didn't want it. I didn't want to drink. We had two young daughters, and so on. So. I said to him, I'm leaving you, just like that. And he said, you can't leave me. I love you. I don't, I don't want to lose you. I said, I'm leaving you because I don't want this life for our children. And so he was very upset about that. And I was in tears. I was telling him. I was crying. I said, I love you. And I said, it's actually kind of funny. I said, we can be legally separated, but I'm not living with you anymore. You know, but I, I will always love you. I, that won't change. But at that point, he realized I was no longer threatening him. I was going to do it. Now, hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. I just want to remind okay. folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Winnie Barnum-Newman about her life with her husband, Buell, and 51-plus years of marriage alcoholism, depression, and then ultimately cancer, which is what took his life. And Winnie spent much of that time uh, as a caregiver on his behalf. When you said to him, I don't want that life for our children, what is it you meant? What was that life? I didn't, uh, the life of not knowing when their father was going to drink. And, uh, he, it affects your body. It affects, um, he was a beautiful man, very, very handsome. And very sweet, very kind, very much a gentleman. This is what's ironic about the whole thing. Um, I didn't want anybody else, and I won't get into a long story about how we met and all of that, but it was love at first sight for both of us, and it never went away. Never. As difficult as it was to deal with the depression uh, for both of us, uh, it, it was an extraordinary relationship. So, and I actually, I will tell you one thing, which was kind of funny, truthfully. One of the things was because we had such an incredible um, physical attraction to one another, but we couldn't stay in bed every day. If you could do that, that might help with depression. (laughs) But (laughs) At some point you had to get up, huh? (laughs) At some point you have to get up. (laughs) So... Even our daughters recognized, though, that we had this incredible, wonderful relationship. Well, they were they both wanted that in their lives, so, which is interesting. So, so what did, um, did he ultimately get treated for the depression after he stopped drinking? No, he could not take medications. We tried everything. So I had to come up with ways to help him. One of the ways was to... Um, it sounds so silly, but I, my agent's husband actually told me that that's something that they're looking into now with, as therapists. They've just begun to, to start doing it. 
I decided that one of the ways for him to feel better was for him to own it. In other words, recognize the symptoms when they started to come on. That way he wouldn't say things to me that were unkind or to the children. Because depression is, it does that. It controls the mind. And someone will turn around and snap at you or say something that they don't mean at all. He would say something unkind and an hour later he'd come in and say, I don't know why I did that. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I said that. So I knew he loved me. I had no doubt about that. Uh, and I knew I loved him. And one of the other things that we, I, we would do, and I didn't come up with it, we just did it on our own, was we argued like anybody, any couple, and, but we would always say, I love you more than anything in the world, but I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> and that worked. It was a, it was a, a kind of a, a reaffirmation that you married this person in the first place, you loved them. And, and it was just a way of saying, you know, I'm not going to let this come in between us. All right, and we're going to come right back to you. Hold that thought. I want to talk, too, about uh, how he was able to work fighting depression and then uh, the onset of cancer, which is ultimately in 2013, right. uh, which took his life. We're talking with Winnie Barnum-Newman, an artist, a writer, an author, and uh, some of you may know one of her books, Gum Wrappers and Goggles. Uh, the lead character in that book, by the way, became the Southwest Airlines mascot. What a small world right here in San Antonio. <laughs> I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. We are talking with Winnie Barnum Newman about her life as not only an, an author, uh, uh, an artist, and a caring and loving mother and wife, about her role as a caregiver, something that uh, she's writing a book about at this very moment. Uh, Winnie's husband, Buell T. Newman, died in August of 2013, and she is trying to uh, put down on paper what uh, that was like and how she discovered uh, that role of caregiving. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. Uh, Winnie, talk to us about when you realized you were a caregiver. Oh, in the hospital. I lived with him in the hospital, uh, that isn't the most usual thing to do, but I actually moved in with him. That's when uh, he was battling cancer. Yes, he had uh, he had uh, non smell non cell um, metastatic lung cancer, non smell small cell metastatic lung cancer, and uh, it's a little hard for me to talk about it, but I can do it. Um, but I wanted him to have care. And one of the interesting things that I learned, this is extremely important, when the physician that we finally hired, the first one we hired, and I won't go into that long story because it's, it's anyway, came into the room, she talked all about herself and didn't even pay attention to my husband who was sitting there in pain and hurting. And so my first instinct was to say, I. I tried to look at it like she came highly recommended, and I thought, no, I can't do this. I can't have him in her care. So we we quit, and we went to um, uh, Ian Thompson, who was then head of the CTRC, and we talked with him, and he recommended two physicians, and uh, wonderful, absolutely incredible. And uh, one of them became our main physician. And when I say our and everybody, you know, I've had people say, oh, he was yours, too. He was, yes, as a matter of fact. When you have a disease in a family, it belongs to the whole family. And if you don't have that attitude, then you, you won't be a good caregiver. You have to have the attitude, this is mine as well. I have to deal with this on a daily basis. So I recognize that. And when the doctor asked me, he said, you've told me all about him. What uh, what is it you expect and want? And I said, well, I recognized that uh, what the prognosis was, and I understood what the final outcome would probably be. But having said that, I would work very hard to make him comfortable. Whatever I had to do, he would be comfortable. I would not let him be in pain. I would not let him hurt. And I did that. I fought for him that way. I, I actually had one physician fired 
not the good one, uh, he was a hospitalist, actually, who was not um, a positive thing for my husband. He upset my husband several times by things he would say, and he wouldn't deal with me because I'm a woman. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to come in and talk to my husband, and he would upset my husband. And I, st- I said, would you mind speaking with me out in the hall? And then I asked the other doctors to remove him and not let him come back. That's an important thing. You have to take that position. If you see that that's happening, you have to speak up with all kinds of respect and positive attitude. I learned that. You, I feel that way anyway in my life. You really do, no matter what you have to do, you treat everyone with respect and dignity. Well, you said, something, a, you said something very interesting, Winnie, and I think most folks don't uh, view the relationship between doctor, patient, and family of the same way, but probably should. You said we hired a couple of doctors. Uh, most yes. folks don't look at it from that perspective. Yes. Well, you can fire them, too. Uh, absolutely, and you did. Right. And that's, that's the problem with, with some of the hospitals at this point, because many physicians feel that they're above being dismissed. I don't feel they are. I, I don't care how wonderful they are as far as their knowledge, etc. I feel that if you either can't get along with the physician, which wasn't the case, I just, I just saw things in her that I didn't accept, you know, they all take the Hippocratic Oath. Not all of them follow it. I don't think all of them understand it. Well, I mean, I, I think, think that it's very important, though, what you said, and, you know, in terms of if you're not a, a team, if you are at odds with a physician, that's an entirely different experience that you're going to have. Um, right. And, and in a cancer diagnosis, I mean, you just don't need that. No. Well, I kept him comfortable. I, I was the one who took responsibility for bathing him and um, taking care of him that way. Um, I saw to it that I tried to get him to eat, even though they all get to a point where they have what is called cancer throat, and they don't want to eat, and that that keeps them from wanting to eat. Um, most cancer patients do, no matter what the cancer is. And it, he, um, we talked about his death. We talked about things that he wanted and um, what I could do for him and Another thing I think is extremely important is uh, you need to have a will. Not everybody does. We didn't because we couldn't face the fact that we'd ever have to say goodbye to each other. It was a very uh, wrong thing to do. Two very intelligent people who just could not face that part of life. All too typical. (laughs) It is. It is. And it is extremely important. I went through a very difficult time afterwards because I was given bad information by my own lawyer and it caused a problem and I had to go through probate. I had a wonder then I found a wonderful lawyer that by the way Charlie Gonzalez helped me find and I he'd been a partner of hers and uh, she was incredible kind and she went to probate I didn't even have to go to probate she took care of everything. So and when you're suffering from Losing somebody, and uh, I developed PTSD, and when that happens to you, uh, you don't want to have to go stand in a uh, courtroom <laughs> and argue about your your um, rights. So those are important things. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the environment at the hospital and how they responded to you stepping in on a full-time basis. We're talking with Winnie Barnum-Newman and the care and caregiving she provided for her late husband, Buell T. Newman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer, and that's where we are right now, talking with Winnie. Uh, Not a lot of uh, uh, spouses and caregivers uh, literally pick up and move right into the hospital uh, with their care recipient, in this case, your husband. Uh, mm-hmm. How receptive was the hospital to Winnie taking over? Well, first of all, it was a wonderful little hospital. It's a smaller one. Uh, I mean, on every level, as good as any of the hospitals in San Antonio. It was right next to Methodist. And um, they 
they were a little surprised, <laughs> uh, but they were very accommodating. Uh, they realized the relationship that we had. They would often find me napping with him in bed, or um, he had a really sweet thing he would do, and I never, never made him stop it. And that was, and I'll, I'll tell it because I tell it in the book. He would put his left arm around me, and he would hold on to, I'm a small person. I'm not a great big woman. Yeah, you so weigh about a pound. <laughs> I weigh a little more than that. <laughs> oh, okay. But it was easy for him to do. And he would put his hand on my right breast. Now, that there was nothing lascivious about that. It was that it comforted him. It was his way of holding me as we had always had that relationship, but could no longer have a relationship that way. Right. So it was very comforting to him. And I never moved his hand. I don't care who came in the room. They just all had to put up with it. And several people commented on that. When he, the doctors were, were wonderful. They were so kind to me. But when he passed away, the woman from the morgue called me. I went to the morgue with him because, I, for me, that was an important thing to do. I had been with him all those years, and I wasn't going to just say, okay, take him. And uh, he passed away in my arms. And when I was uh, out the next day doing making funeral arrangements and so on, uh, about four hours after he had passed away, uh, the woman from the morgue called me which was such a sweet thing to do. And I, it's so important for people to get this type of of support. She called, she said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I suppose I'm doing as well as to be expected. You know, what do you answer? And um, she said, well, I just want you to know that we were all aware, uh, as she said, of your love story and your love for each other. And we're so sorry. And the staff, all of us, the hospital is what she said, mm -hmm. wanted to give you our condolences. Wow. Very nice. So obviously they didn't hold it against me that, <laughs> I, that I lived in the hospital. You know, there were nurses, but the, even the nurses came around. The uh, They were wonderful. The aides, sometimes I would have to have someone help me because he, was, he, was, he weighed in good health between 190 and 200 pounds, and he's six foot. So he wasn't, he's not a little man, wasn't a little man. Mm -hmm. And there were times when I just couldn't turn him over. But they were wonderful. They were supportive and loving, and I don't think anybody held it against me. Now, you mentioned that uh, part of the reason you wanted to write this book is what you saw in the hospital with, with other caregivers and things that yes. uh, troubled you. I, I'm added, I added the chapter about the caregiving because one number one, it does the illness does belong to everyone in the family. They have to own it as well. They have to um, take their own responsibility in handling it for themselves. I have a daughter who has MS. It's the same thing. Uh, I, you know, I've told her. I said, you know, we all have this because. You're the one who's going through it, but we love you. And it, it has to belong to the family. That helps. That helps you deal with it. And um, it, I, I felt like caregivers, sometimes they're either angry or they're, they're too acquiescent, if that makes sense. And they don't have to be. They, they need to be sure that they include anything important in the background of the individual for the doctors, that's that's a responsibility. And tell everything you can to help them treat the patient, just as I was very honest about his, his uh, alcoholism, which he hadn't had a drink in 45 years. So he quit after nine years of our marriage. So that wasn't, wasn't an issue, but... There is an alcoholics a certain type of response to drugs, so that's very important. The doctor knows that, and uh, he couldn't take medications. You asked me about his depression, um, so the only medication he could t 
take was Coumadin, and he took that because he had basilar cell, uh, basilar artery disease, which means that the basilar artery, which carries the blood back to the vein, uh, the in the brain, um, is either stopped or it is too narrow for the blood to pass freely. So it's very important that they take a blood thinner. So it's a fairly common condition. Well, I'll tell you what, we are unfortunately flat out of time, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, And when your book is done and published, we'd love to get you back on, Winnie. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love that. And thank you so much for your willingness to share your stories, ups and downs, and it sounds like overall it was a wonderful marriage. It was. was We appreciate you sharing the story. It was. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. You take care. Bye-bye. Winnie okay. Barnum Newman, and uh, we're delighted to have her spend that time. Incredible artist, by the way, is. Uh, I, my son still has the airplane, the Southwest Airlines airplane. It's an incredible yeah, book. Yeah, I, I, I may take it and have her autograph it, and, right? And she's uh, done the illustrations for a number of other children's books uh, over the years. I'm Ron Aaron, Aaron with Carol Zerniel, and guess what's up next? you got to take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. As we promised, and we delivered, time for Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air. It's the way we end each and every one of our programs. We bring in Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on issues of not only caregiving, but issues of addiction as well. And he joins us on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline. And Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. And you threw out the topic of overcoming and dealing with death of a loved one or a care recipient. Yeah, of grief. So, Jamie, you know, we, we had a guest recently on the show um, who had this wonderful love story with her husband um, who was alcoholic but uh, got over it, uh, had a nice long life, but then he passed away of cancer. So, you know, there's so many people that we deal with at our Caregiver SOS Centers and the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and sometimes they know that death's coming, and sometimes it's a complete surprise. Uh, and so, you know, in this country where we're so a- adverse to talking about death um, or, you know, not getting over soon enough, um, you know, why is, why is it so hard uh, to deal with death? Well, it's it's an obvious answer. I mean, it's it's separation, it's loss, and it's a uh, there's feelings actually of abandonment in some ways as well. You know, for a caregiver, we as caregivers tend to start grieving actually pretty much before the person passes away. Uh, the situation within you know a caregiver carry relationship already has us acknowledge a chronic or terminal illness is, is about to come day in and day out. We were cognizant of that. Um, so as a caregiver, certainly, that allows us a bit more ability to titrate than sudden death. But no doubt, it feels, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's grief, there's loss, there's abandonment, there's guilt. And so for all those reasons, it's a, it's a difficult thing for a caregiver to, to kind of take in. That was Nancy Reagan talking about the long goodbye for Ronald Reagan as he slipped away with Alzheimer's, and it was indeed a long goodbye. Oh, it was, and, and for her, you know, you can imagine the delayed grief uh, that was coming. I mean, she knew what we didn't know as a society. She had, a, she was aware of, of her husband's cognitive abilities certainly long before we were, and and no doubt Nancy really has a whole different portrait of this. And, and I'd encourage your your listeners to to grab her book. It's excellent. Well, so um, 
you know, in my own family where we have uh, a layer of relatives that are all in their late 80s and 90s, and we've already lost two this year, and I suspect it's going to be more than that, you know, it just feels like this, you know, you're punched and you try to get up and you're punched again um, and it renews. It's like it opens the, the first wound that you had and it, you know, it, it happens all over again. Um, so, you know, what do you do when you're dealing with multiple, you know, sources of grief? Well, first of all, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of a caregiver. Remember that a caregiver has a pretty tightly wrapped schedule and it's around their, their ailing partner, if you will. Uh, so if you're a parent or if you're a child or brother or sister, your life is pretty much laid out in, in a way that, you know, it's a scheduled sort of event. And when those scheduled events no longer happen and you're left alone, then there's really a challenge. My Always my suggestion is, along before a person passes away as a caregiver, to seek out therapy, to be able to process what's ahead of you, to be able to process when it happens. Not only that, caregivers suffer from, as I mentioned with Nancy, the great it's complicated grief and grief and issue. So make sure you have a therapist at least six months or a year afterwards when it really hits you. Now, are there therapists who specialize in this area? Oh, most definitely. And there's some great ones out there who just deal strictly with loss and grief and, and actually have actually have it that way, a subset of, of senior geriatric issues. So you can find them, as you often hear me tell you, at Psychology Today, when you just put your zip code in, when you go to psychologytoday.com. Um, or certainly contact your insurance agency, but make sure that, that they drill down to exactly what you said, Ron. Somebody who deals very well with grief and, and seniors. I mean, this is really important and has a, has a background in caregiving. Well, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised when my mother passed away this year. My father and the materials that he got from the funeral home, they actually had a booklet on grief, um, and they had a listing of local support groups and and some therapists that did deal uh, with grief. Porter Loring does that here in San Antonio. I'm familiar with them because it's the funeral home that most Jewish families will go to, uh, and they have a, uh, a free counseling service, whether you've used their services or not, for dealing with grief. Well, and I I wonder how many people take advantage of them, because I think, Jamie, we all think we just need to, you know, get over it. Well, you know, what you say makes sense, Carol, but for caregivers, there's this feeling of purpose. How do you say this? I'm trying to get it out. Purposelessness. How's that? Where this is your whole life. You're wrapped up in terms of taking care of your loved one, being responsible for them. And so you really have a sense of purposelessness. And I, I tell you right now that, that the most important thing is to get engaged. Uh, what Ron's talking about um, is vital, to go to a good support group. You know, as he's speaking with it, all cultures have their way of dealing with death and dying. Um, in the Jewish culture, there's something called shiva, where you literally sit and you bring food and you sit and talk and you celebrate the life. You know, whatever religion you have, that's really the way to go. Make sure you're connected. Make sure you can talk to somebody who's gone through what you've gone through. Try to honor the person and celebrate their life as opposed to crawling deeper into the hole. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. And Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Uh, Carol, you have, in, in the last year, lost some family very close to you. Your your favorite aunt was one of those who passed away, and obviously you're thinking about others who may be coming. How do you process all that? Well, I mean, I think that's a, uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not trying to make you cry. No, no, no. And it, you know, it, but it, it's something that my family, we, my sister and I, who, you know, are close in age, have been talking about it, and we really, we really have to stay focused on that idea, Jamie, you were talking about in Sitting Shiva, that celebration, that acknowledgement of a life well-lived um, and the positive relationships, and also, you know, the recognition that this is a one-way ticket, right? Um, we're, we're not going to get out of this world alive. Nobody is. And so, um, you know, people get old and wear out, and that's the way it is. And we you know, kind of have to be realistic about that and just, you know, you got to hang on to the good stuff. You know, Jamie, after my dad died, my mother used to talk about how she felt him uh, in bed with her, which uh, I've come to learn is pretty common among some folks, that uh, they sense their presence and find that very reassuring. No doubt. It's almost like phantom pains, Ron. Um, you've been with somebody for so long. You're taking care of them 65 for so years long. in their case. Uh, 65 years, yeah. yeah. 
Oh my gosh, you know that's that's unbelievable. And and to Carol's point, you know you can't always stay stuck in the past. You can the past will will beckon us and draw us in like quicksand. But you can also celebrate the past, and and this is what I think what families do. And if you don't have a therapist, it's not like you have to be in a therapist's office seven days a week, twenty four hours a day. But you should be able to talk to your family, just like Carol's talking about in terms of the good times, the the celebration of memory, you know, the the experiences that were fun and might have been forgotten. That's where the past serves as well. Yeah, and every once in a while, like with my aunt, we all laugh because we all got yelled at for talking during Walter Cronkite when we were little. Her son, my sister, and I, all of us were yelled. In fact, I the last time I saw her, she yelled at me for talking during the news. And, you know, Walter's been gone for a while, but I still yeah, got changed. in trouble for talking in the news. You know, so sometimes it doesn't even have the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly um, that we're remembering. Um, well, Jamie, you know, one of the things that I've tra- heard you talk about in the past is after caregiving. So when there has been a death and you sort of are poking your head up and looking around about what are you going to do with your life um is it appropriate is that a good fit for maybe caregivers to want to help other caregivers in similar circumstances it is after the proper time of their own grieving obviously they don't want to stuff that sort of trauma that and and, and loss feeling they want to process that and then you know when they're feeling better that's a wonderful thing to do is to like we say to keep it you got to give it away is to, to work with others. Also, a great thing to do for caregivers is kind of creating positive rituals, you know, to, to move through the grief type of process. So what you're saying is it makes all the sense in the world. Just remember, though, don't jump back into it to help somebody before you've grieved the loss yourself. As you think about finding that therapist, there are a lot of folks who are, are, are adverse to doing so, uh, but it's not a sign of weakness. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, there's an industry out there which Carol, who's a gerontologist, knows better than I do, which is the geriatric uh, psychology world, if you will. And and it's not a sign of weakness. As a matter of fact, it's extraordinarily purposeful. They serve as wonderful coaches, fabulous sort of reflective ears, if you will, and they, they will help you just uh, along the path. It's Bingo. not a Freudian or Jungian thing. It's a life thing. We're out of time. Speaking of life, think thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernil, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernial for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com